Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 27, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name, again, is Rick. Uh, Those of you who listen to this podcast all the time, you already know this, that I am the author of the just-released book, The God Who Fights For You. And last year, the book Spiritual Grit and its two companion devotions for adults and teenagers, and before that, The Jesus-Centered Life, and before that, General Editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible, all that Jesus-y stuff. So I was just on a podcast today, and it was for people who are wanting to be writers, learn how to write, uh, maybe even write a book, and I just, uh, in the context of talking to them, I said, I published eight books in the last 10 years, and then I thought, have I really done that? (laughs) Wow, that's a lot of books. So it it has seemed like for the last decade, I am never not writing a book. And right now, I am writing a book. (laughs) I am in the biggest, in the middle of the biggest project of my life. It's called The Jesus-Centered Daily. It's a 365-day devotional. And I told the writers today on the podcast, it's like writing a book that has 365 chapters, because <laughs> each one of these little things is just packed. It's dense with what I hope turns out to be Jesus' treasure. In each one of these little pages is 300 words, and in those 300 words, I have a little devotional thought and experience to try that's sensory-based out of that little devotional thought, a question to ponder during the day, and something Jesus said directly that uh, ties into the devotional thought. So all of that in 300 words. So it's always been true. If you talk to any writer, it's much harder to write shorter than longer. And so 300 words is about as short as I can go. (laughs) So I'm in the middle of that, and uh, it's due into our editing process in November, and it'll come out in 2020. So we'll obviously talk more about that when it comes to it. So, But uh, obviously the common thread all these things have is paying ridiculous attention to Jesus, which is why this podcast got its name. We, we slow down and consider the truth about Jesus. Uh, we let him define what is true about him instead of our assumptions. So today is the seventh episode in a series that will extend deep into the summer. I may backtrack and go back and readdress a couple of these nine essential questions that we've been moving through. I'll just have to see how I feel when we finish the ninth episode of this series, but it is called Jesus Answers Life's Essential Questions, and it's drawn from a special feature that I planted in the Jesus-Centered Bible. We just decided, what if we figured out the nine sort of universal questions all human beings have, and then figured out how Jesus responds or, or answers those questions? So that's what I did. Narrowed it down to nine, and then just slowed down whenever I saw Jesus addressing that crucial question, and then wrote a little uh, little boxed essay next to each of them. So when you read the four Gospels in the Jesus-Centered Bible, you'll find these essential questions boxes scattered throughout. So today's focus is, what is truth? Now, this is a universal question for us in an age where 
I think the lines between truth and untruth are right now almost blurred beyond recognition. When you know you hear the term fake news all the time, and it's often used like a bludgeon or a muzzle to try to accuse or stop the conversation. And it's a time when a person who has no skills or training is just blogging in their basement, and that person's view of the world or reporting of the facts can be more trusted than professional journalists. Uh, It's a time when the church is wrestling with how to respond to the culture's changing attitude toward what are what have been long-held moral truths. Uh, truth in this age is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, truth is under assault. Truth is up for debate. Truth is simply uh, a marker from what preset perspective you're coming from. So truth and what it is and isn't infiltrates our everyday life in some profound ways. It's also a truth that comes right out of the mouth of Pilate. Yeah, that Pilate, not P-I-L-O-T. It's P-I-L-A-T-E, that Pilate. It comes right out of his, his mouth. And let me just flip over to John chapter 18 and read you this little segment where Pilate literally says the very question we're going after here, which is, what is truth? It's in chapter 18 of John starts in verse 28. Let me just read you this little section that's my Jesus-centered Bible. The section heading is called Jesus' Trial Before Pilate. So let's, let's listen to this little encounter. Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning, and then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them, and they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the Passover. So Pilate, the governor, went out to them and asked, what is your charge against this man? So just to reiterate here, this is the Roman governor that Jesus has been taken to, so he's not a religious official. He's the Roman governor who has the power to execute. Uh, that's why Jesus is being taken to him. And so he's asking the people, what is your charge against this man? And they respond, well, we wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal, they retorted. So they don't even answer his question. They're basically saying, what, why are you even asking us that question? If we say that he should be executed, then we think he should be executed. Why are you even asking us? So Pilate responds, then take him away and judge him by your own law. Well, the Jewish leaders reply, only the Romans are permitted to execute someone. And in parentheses, this fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way he would die. And then Pilate went back into his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews, he asked him. Jesus replied, Is this your own question, or did others tell you about me? What a sly response from Jesus. Am I a Jew, Pilate retorted? Your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. So Pilate said, So, you are a king. Jesus responded, You say I'm a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. What is truth? Pilate asked. I almost imagine him saying it, just weary with the whole thing. I mean, weary with the Jewish leaders, weary that this has been dumped in his lap, weary that he has to pull answers out of Jesus, who's not really answering him directly, 
what is truth? And then Pilate went out again to the people and told them, He's not guilty of any crime, but you have a custom of asking me to release one prisoner each year at Passover. Would you like me to release this king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not this man. We want Barabbas. And there you have it. So here you see Pilate. He's asking the question that is our question in our culture today. And we ask it in kind of a weary way, just like him. What is truth anyway? It's been so contested, so blurred. How do we get there? Well, I was looking around, uh, exploring more deeply this question of what is truth, and exactly how, how the world around us, how our culture around us tries to answer that question. And I found a fascinating little essay by a psychology professor named Ira Hyman. He's trying to tackle this question, and I just thought I'd read you a little section of what he wrote in his grappling with trying to figure out well, what is truth. Here's what he says. Why is the truth important? We all need to know the truth if we want to be able to behave rationally. Should I grant the student an extension on a project? Again, uh, he's speaking from his personal experience as a professor, so he's wondering, should I grant this student an extension on his project? I need to know if they actually had a serious conflict or if they were simply lazy. Should I use the results of someone's research to make an important argument? I need to know that the data are reliable and true. Should we continue this relationship? I need to believe that you've told me the truth about where you were last night. Oh, but the internet and social media. Finding the truth seems impossible. He continues on here. Recently, some Stanford University researchers, Sam Weinberg and Sarah McGrew, reported that students at all levels have difficulty assessing the reliability of information that they find on the internet. Oh, there's a news alert. We have trouble assessing what's true and what isn't true on the internet. He continues, this really shouldn't surprise anyone. Websites from unreliable organizations aren't going to promote that they're unreliable. <laughs> Those websites are going to look reliable and trustworthy. People can't tell which websites are reliable and which information is true. He goes on to say there's a lot of fake news, obviously, often promoted by well-known people. One big uh, spotlighted example of that that he profiles in this little piece is that child trafficking accusation that was uh, linked to the Clintons. Remember that? Uh, this was during the, right around the time of the election, and someone accused Hillary Clinton of being involved in a child trafficking organization that was based in a pizza shop in Washington, D.C. And this got passed around and accepted as true so widely and so quickly that uh, a man actually attacked that pizza shop with a gun to free all of the supposedly enslaved children in the basement of the pizza shop. Now, obviously, you know, uh, Professor Hyman is trying to spotlight this particular example to show that some people propagate lies, um, and they know their lies, and they're using them to try to leverage a situation or get a desired outcome. So he gives some other examples of, you know, what we might call popular lies that have gotten entrenched, that people have heard so much or they seem so plausible that they've embraced, things like uh, the number of people who believe that vaccines cause autism, even though the original study that suggested this link was uh, has long since been debunked uh, as a misrepresentation. It's it's has no bearing on the truth whatsoever, and yet that same belief still hangs on. And he also references, you know, a big one in our world, which is that some people believe that there is no global warming issue on earth today. And if there is a global warming issue, it has nothing to do with human behavior, even though 
every you know re respected, accepted scientific organization in the world, um, no matter where you are, says there is global warming and human beings have contributed to it. Still, this lie that human beings have not contributed to global warming still hangs on no matter what we say. So in the end, all of these things, of course, affect our everyday life. These things affect our political views, the choices we make about where we live and what things we buy and don't buy. They all infect our practical choices and experiences at a micro level. So Professor Hyman continues on, well, how do you judge the truth? If you're like most of us, you probably don't do the hard work. Do we trust the source? Then we believe the message. Does it have a picture? Then we're more likely to believe it. Have we heard this before? Then it starts to feel more true. Does it fit with our pre-existing beliefs? Well, that's the lie we want to believe. <laughs> we accept truthiness instead of requiring truth. And here's the last part that he goes into. People sometimes deliberately mislead and lie. People present information they know to be false with some goal in mind. Many people come to believe various lies, and these lies seem to be impossible to correct. The pizza shop story was one such deliberate lie with the goal of influencing the election. We all know what happened with that. Um, in fact, one of the debates at the center of all the controversy that we've had in the last two years is how much the Russians infiltrated and influenced and affected the election process using lies and deceptions uh, to confuse and sort of foment anger and emotion among the American electorate. The question is, how much did that actually impact the election today? Well, this issue, this tension between what is true and what isn't true, has such profound impact that it, the evidence seems to show through the Mueller report that it had some influence on the results of our 2016 election. So Professor Hyman concludes, in science, there are consequences for misrepresentations and lies. Eventually, science gets to the truth. However, he says, this is what it means to live in a post-truth world. Even if we try to be rational and thoughtful, we may base our judgments on lies. We may make decisions based on things we want to be true rather than the real state of the world. When the truth is buried under a mountain of misrepresentations, we cannot make wise decisions. Oh, that is so true. The truth matters. Of course it does. If you believe something to be true that is actually a lie, then you're in deep doo-doo. And that's my paraphrase of what Jesus said when he said, if the darkness that's with if you treat the darkness within you as light, how deep is your darkness? What he means is the truth matters. And if you fully embrace a lie, treat it as if it's a bedrock truth, then you are headed for destruction. So another way of describing this sort of crisis of truth is the term that's a kind of popular now, gaslighting. I've heard a lot of people use the term, you know, that that person is gaslighting another person. And I'm not always sure if people understand where the source of this term really came from. It comes from a famous wartime film called Gaslight, which I watched many years ago, and it's a fantastic film, by the way. It stars Charles Boyer as a evil, cunning, manipulating husband uh, to the beautiful Ingrid Bergman, kind of a eerie, tense movie. It's not a horror movie, but you would call it a thriller, because the film is essentially about 
a murderer, played by Charles Boyer, who got away with murder, but he had murdered a, a famous opera singer who had some priceless jewels, and he murdered her to get those jewels and then couldn't find the jewels. He was interrupted by this opera singer's young niece, who was only 14 or 15 at the time, and he had to flee the house. And he's been plotting ever since on how to get back into that house and find those jewels. And meanwhile, that little girl grows up into a woman who played by Ingrid Bergman, whose name is Paula, and this conniving guy somehow manages to romance her and marry her, and then convinces her to move back into her aunt's home. And his whole mission is to get the space he needs to figure out where those hidden jewels are. So he decides on a sneaky plan to get what he wants. He decides to drive his new wife insane by telling her repeated lies as if they were true. So, for instance, she finds a letter that's an incriminating letter that could really expose this murderer for who he is, and he steals the letter and hides it and then says, when you held up that letter, you were holding up nothing. I don't know what you were doing, but you didn't have anything in your hand. So he uses that same tactic over and over again. He steals a painting off the wall and says, you must have stolen that painting and, and sold it somewhere. He takes his watch off of its chain and then puts the watch in her purse and says, what happened to my watch? And then he looks in her purse and finds it there and says, you stole my watch. So gaslighting is when, here's the official definition, (laughs) gaslighting is a form of psychological manipulation in which a person seeks to sow seeds of doubt in a targeted individual or in members of a targeted group, making them question their own memory, perception, and sanity. And it comes from this film, the, the title of the film, Gaslight, is about the lights in this house that they live in dim all the time, and the evil murderer guy is always telling Paula, Ingrid Bergman, that she's crazy, that the lights are just fine. When she sees the lights dim, she says, well, why are the lights dimming? And he says, what are you talking about? The lights aren't dimming. So the lights dim, by the way, because that guy's up in the attic turning on some lights in the attic to look for those jewels. And when he does that, it makes the lights in the house go uh, flicker a little bit. So gaslighting then was a term taken from this film for people who are intentionally trying to mislead others by treating obvious things as if they're not obvious and accusing people of things that they really haven't done. So he's, again, trying to drive his wife insane in the end so that he can commit her, so that he can have the run of the house and find the jewels that he's after. So we're going to listen to a scene that's in the film where you hear Charles Boyer trying to gaslight his wife. Now, later on in the film, this Scotland Yard inspector um, convinces Paula to come into her house when Charles Boyer is away, and he's looking for proof that she's being gaslighted, and he finds it. And in the end of the film, he manages to rescue her before Charles Boyer kills her or gets her committed. So, But we're going to listen to a scene earlier in the film when the evil guy is uh, deliberately planting lies in his wife's head, trying to drive her insane, just so you get an idea of what this sounds like. So let's listen. I've tried so hard to keep it within these walls, my own house. Ah, because you would go out tonight. The whole of London knows it. If I could only get inside that brain of yours and understand what makes you do these crazy, twisted things. 
Gregory, are you trying to tell me I'm insane? It's what I'm trying not to tell myself. But that's what you think, isn't it? That's what you've been hinting and suggesting for months now, ever since... Hmm? Since what? Since the day I lost your brooch. Oh. Yes, that's when it all began. No, no. No, no, it began before that. The first day here, when I found that letter. What letter? The one I found among the music from that man called Bauer. Sergius Bauer, yes, I remember. Yes, you're right. That's when it began. Yes. I can see you still, standing there and saying, look, look at this letter and staring at nothing. What? You had nothing in your hand. What? I was staggered. But I didn't know then how much reason I had to be. I, I, I don't know. I, I, what, what reason? I didn't I, know then about your mother. What about my mother? Your mother was mad. Oh, Gregory. She died in an asylum when you were a year old. That's not true. I've been making inquiries about Alice Alquist's sister. I've talked to the doctor who attended her. You'd like to see him? No. He described her symptoms to me. Do you like to hear them? Oh, no. It began with her imagining things, that she heard noises, footsteps, voices. And then the voices began to speak to her. And in the end, she died in an asylum with no brain at all. No, please! Oh, no, no. Now perhaps you will understand a lot of things about yourself and me. Now perhaps you will understand why I cannot let you meet people. Okay, there you have it. Charles Boyer evilly trying to deconstruct and destroy his wife. So, and they've just come back from a, a party where he has accused her of something and she goes nuts because she thinks she's losing her mind. And now he's trying to convince her that she can never go out in public again because she makes such a spectacle of herself. So it's a, it's a cruel movie in the sense that you can see why what he's doing is plausible and believable, and it's also designed with the intent to destroy. So when Jesus calls our enemy Satan the father of lies and describes his, uh, Satan's job description as killing, stealing, and destroying, Satan's really his only leverage, his only tool left in his toolbox now that Jesus has taken back all authority— uh, the only tool he has left is deception. But it's not just normal deception. It's this kind of deception that you've just listened to. It's a destructive kind of deception that plays upon the gaps of our belief, um, our willingness to accept plausible truths, and our typical unwillingness to poke underneath the surface of those deceptions to see what their foundation is. And so... We are up against a culture that spits out a, a you know sort of a fire hose of truth and untruth all mixed together, and expecting that we will accept all of it as long as it fits within our already preset worldview. And in addition to that, we have an enemy, Jesus says, whose uh, only occupation all day long is to deceive, and not to deceive just for the sport of it, but to deceive in order to destroy. So our, the question, what is truth, is crucial, and our only real hope is to lean into Jesus, who is the source of all truth. So let's, let's do that now. We're going to skip over here to Matthew chapter 4, 
I'm going to look at three different encounters that Jesus has, or three different teaching moments, when he addresses directly what truth really is. The first one is in Matthew chapter 4. So if you're not driving and you want to skip on over to Matthew chapter 4, we're, gonna, we're just going to look at one, uh, one little encounter Jesus has in his desert temptation. Uh, now this, again, he was 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness. He was thirsty and hungry. He was weary. And uh, in verse 3, it says, during that time, the devil came and said to him, the devil, that same deceiver who's trying to destroy, he, can't, he comes to Jesus and he says, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told them, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So here uh, Jesus is attacked with deception by Satan, and what he's, what he's doing uh, in responding to him is answering the question, what is truth? Because this is really what Satan is raising here. He, he's saying, essentially, isn't it true that if you, if you are the Son of God, then you could just look at those stones and turn them into bread? Do you see the, the kind of fuzzy, fake news uh, tactic that Satan is using here? He's mixing a little bit of truth um, with a whole lot of uh, insidious deception. So right out of the gate, he, uh, he insinuates a challenge. He says, if you are the Son of God. He's not accepting that Jesus is the Son of God. He's questioning from the very beginning, if this is really true that you're the Son of God, you should be able to do this. So the, the evil that worms its way in here is really the, the devil's sly way of slipping in, if you are. He's really challenging the truth about Jesus' identity. And at the core of this sort of insinuation, Satan is also questioning the very foundations of truth. And if you think about this, Satan's MO is that he rebelled against God and took a third of, the, of heaven's angels with him when he did. But what was the central beef that Satan had with God? Satan disbelieved that, or was quite skeptical about God's uh, sort of um, uh, condensing of power and authority in himself. Satan believed that, well, why can't I have some of that? Why, why is God the only one that has that? Uh, I'm just as beautiful, I'm just as good as he is. In fact, um, I don't know why he's bothering creating this disgusting chattel, these human beings, if, if I was in charge, I wouldn't be doing that. Of course I wouldn't be doing that. Those are disgusting little creations. So Satan himself begins to believe a lie and then throws that lie back at God and saying, you know, your identity, who you say you are, is not really the truth. He starts to insinuate this from the very beginning of time. And here he is living it, living it out again with Jesus. And Jesus here responds by quoting the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 8.3, um, and that, that response is anchored in the truth of Scripture. He says, no, the Scriptures say people need more than bread for their life. They must feed on every word of God. So the, the issue here is um, when human beings decide for themselves what truth is, then we, we can quickly descend into brutality and confusion and hopelessness 
But when we look to God's own words at the source of our truth, then we can find life and hope and redemption and courage and strength. All of all truths are really tiny little tributaries of the massive river of truth who is Jesus himself. This is why, by the way, in John 1, uh, Jesus is called the Word. Um, he, he is the truth himself. So when, we, when he looks to Scripture as the basis of his truth, um, he then is described by the, apostle, by the Apostle John as the Word himself. So Jesus now embodies the authority of Scripture. And so as Jesus looks to old, the Old Testament as his foundation for truth in his response to Satan, we look for our own foundation in the Word, who is Jesus himself, um, for our response to lies. And we'll talk a little bit more about that and how we, um, how by paying better attention to Jesus, we can out some of these sort of um, slyly hidden lies that surround us. So, but for right now, let's move on to Matthew chapter 7 and go to a, a second encounter that Jesus has. This is starting in verse 15 of chapter 7 of Matthew. So this is uh, Jesus giving kind of a long string of um, kingdom of God truths to the crowds who have come to listen to him. So let's read one of these. It uh, starts in verse 15 and goes to verse 20. Um, here's Jesus speaking. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit. By, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. So the question here that's fascinating is, how, well, how do we know what's false and what's true in life? How do we know who's telling the truth and who isn't? And Jesus is essentially telling us, well, the proof is in the pudding, which uh, that, that phrase, that saying means you can't know the truth about the pudding until you taste it. And, that, and Jesus is trying to say you don't know the truth about something until you eat it, until you bite into it, until you taste the fruit to know whether or not it's true. So the... If you think about this relative to our the way we live our lives, if you're wondering whether an influence in your life is true or untrue, good or bad, you simply study its impact on you and your thoughts, your words, your behavior, all of its fruit in your life. That's what Jesus is saying. Um, if, if, it's, if it's a good thing, it's going to produce good fruit in your life. If it's not a good thing, it's going to produce bad fruit in your life. So have you ever watched a TV show or a movie or read a book and you feel like you've been diminished somehow, that you've sort of been dragged back into the darkness because you watched that or read that or listened to that? Have you ever felt like um, you've watched or listened to something and um, you come out of that experience more irritable, more judgmental, um, less loving toward others, less kind toward others? These are all fruits that come from this thing, whatever it is you've exposed yourself to. So TV shows, musicians, websites, authors, you know, if something is true in any of those influences, no matter what it looks like on the outside, it will produce good fruit in your life. Um, and if it's not true, no matter how acceptable that thing is in our culture or how acceptable it is to others, 
it will produce bad fruit. So I know that there's lots of, uh, for instance, shows on TV that are quite popular. Uh, sometimes I've sampled some of the most popular shows people watch, like The Walking Dead, for instance. I've sampled a little bit or um, trying to think of another one. Um, I, I can't off the top of my head. That's the one that pops into my head. Um, and when I sample these things, uh, I, I feel like my spirit's been dragged down somehow. Now, I'm not saying that that's true for everyone, but for me, the, if there's no redemptive storyline in something, or if there's something gratuitously diminishing or demeaning of someone, um, all of these things um, are deceptive in that they have a destructive impact on our soul. And the way you'll know this is true in your life or not is, what's the fruit? This is what Jesus is trying to say. Um, that if, it, if there's bad fruit as a result of whatever this is that you've exposed yourself to, then likely the thing you exposed yourself to is not true. You know, uh, um, when, we're, when our family is looking for films to watch, we watch uh, at least one film every weekend uh, with our family. And we're fans of Stranger Things, as a lot of people are, and we just watched all eight episodes in the last week, um, which I have to say, the season three of Stranger Things was um, one of my favorites. Uh, uh, I, I thought it was really well done. But I have to ask myself after I've exposed myself to that, What's the fruit in my life? So one way we determine the fruit in our family is we talk about every episode that we watch. We stop and talk about the story, the, what story the storyteller is trying to tell. And is it a redemptive story or is it something else? We pick out the things about the story that we don't like. The, we pick out the port parts that we think are like bad fruit in the story. And there were several things in season three of Stranger Things that we picked out and we kind of all collectively agreed we didn't like those parts of the story. And then you have to ask yourself, why didn't you like it? What's, what's at the root of that? Uh, and in some cases, the storyteller has taken a turn into deception, and, and that's what doesn't sit well um, when you watch it. So, And then there's things that are deeply true, and those things are to be celebrated. And so we have a conversation about the things that, were, that we liked um, that were really powerful about that story. So um, if you don't slow down and consider what you're consuming, just the way that you slow down and consider your, your physical diet, what you're eating, what you're putting into your mouth, if you don't slow down and consider what you're putting into your soul, then you'll simply be ingesting a mix of things that are true and untrue. And that is as irresponsible as just eating donuts for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, we have to stop and consider what it is we're eating. Um, we would never eat indiscriminately unless we had an eating disorder. So why do we consume media indiscriminately? You have to slow down and consider what it is we're consuming and be willing midstream to say, I don't want any more of this, to stop eating whatever we're in the midst of because we know uh, it's there's a good deal of deception mixed in there. And the we all have... Jesus promises the spirit, the very spirit of Jesus living in us, and his purpose is to be our rabbi inside, to help us discern truth in our lives. We're not in this alone, so we can depend on the spirit of Jesus who is in us to give us nudges and a sense of it inside 
that there's something about this that is deceptive. Um, there's something about this that isn't true. That same Spirit also celebrates when we're exposed to something that is true. So let's move to one more encounter in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, this starts in verse 13. So Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Um, and this is uh, just after Jesus has performed this like spectacular miracle where he feeds uh, 4,000 people by the Sea of Galilee with these seven loaves of bread and a few fish. And Jesus has now retreated into this district of Caesarea Philippi, and he's asking his disciples uh, this, uh, I think it's, it's such a sly and profound question. He's saying, well, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the disciples give him this sort of conventional answer. Well, some say you're John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then I just love this, when Jesus gets personal with them. Well, who do you say that I am? And then on the precipice of this question, and he's really saying, what's the truth about me, friends? What is the truth you believe about me? Who do you really think I am? Uh, such a profound moment in the whole history of the universe when Jesus asks this question, who do you think I am? And Peter condenses all of the world's truth into one central truth in his response. He says, he looks Jesus in the eye and he says, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus exults over this answer and says, you're blessed, Simon, because you didn't just come up with that answer. Uh, the Spirit of truth himself in you showed you that that's the truth. It's the Spirit of truth that showed you the, the answer that you just gave. So all truths, as I said, are rooted in this one truth, and any so-called truth that's in contradiction to this truth is a cloaked lie. That's a simple way of describing what's going on here. Jesus doesn't merely speak the truth. This is an important distinction. Jesus is not saying that he speaks the truth. Jesus is saying he is the truth, that he is the standard for truth, that if you want to understand what truth is, the only way to truly understand that is to know him, to have him live in you, guide you, and uh, expose what is true and untrue from the inside out. Jesus, yes, he says true things, but his very essence is the truth. All things, all truths and deceptions are judged um, in, in relationship to who Jesus is. So in our everyday life, how do we discern truth from untruth? What what do we do? So uh, this podcast is called Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, and that's actually the first step in discerning what is true and untrue. We pay ridiculous attention to Jesus based on what he's just said, I am the truth. So we get the taste of truth in our mouth, so to speak. We get the feel of that truth underneath our fingernails. We get the soul of that truth um, embedded in our DNA, meaning we pay attention to Jesus. We slow down, we savor, we consider what he's saying and its ramifications. We, we try to put ourselves in the shoes of those who are hearing him say and watching him do these things. We try to understand what impact would that have on us? What's the context that's going on when Jesus says and does these things? What impact would that have if I understood the context more? What does it say about the heart of Jesus that he just said that or just did that? Those are all ways that we slow down and pay better attention to him. To, to I've said this before on the podcast, 
when counterfeit experts who work for the U.S. government are trying to uh, discern when counterfeit currency uh, is being passed around, they, their training doesn't involve studying uh, false currencies. Their training is 100% focused on uh, studying um, real currency, the, the appropriate currency, the, the, the truthful currency of the United States. They have studied that currency so well that they can easily spot a fake when they see it uh, because they know the truth so well. And this is our path as well. How well do you know the truth about Jesus? And how much have you allowed him to dictate to you what is true? Rather than you bringing your truth to him and trying to morph and bend him to sh into shape so that he fits in your truth, how much have you simply invited him and, ex and with open arms said, you define the truth for me, Jesus? That's the first step in discerning truth from un untruth. And you can also, related to that, slow down and ask more questions in life. I can't emphasize this enough. To, to slow down and pay better attention to the things that are coming at you and in you is so crucial, especially when people make what I might call declarative statements, where they use words like all and everywhere and for sure. Those are red flags. Um, they always uh, set off a process in me where I slow down and start to consider what the person is really saying. And I start to look at it from, from three, 360 degrees. Is that really uh, uh, a truth that is, is widely accepted? Um, is it a truth that would come out of Jesus's mouth, for instance? Would he say or do anything on the basis of that thing that was just said? Um, is it a truth that um, accounts for uh, all of the context? Is it a truth that accounts for uh, contrary views? Um, we, we slow down and pay better attention to the stuff people say, especially when it's a declarative statement. So we also look for assumptions that people make or that films make, or that books make, the assumptions, the, the, the givens that they come to the table with, and we out those assumptions. We drag them from the darkness into the light so that we see the assumptions that are out there already. Uh, we surface hidden agendas. Um, what is the agenda of the person that I'm listening to? What, what is their skin in the game um, as a source of information? What, what, what reason would they have to spin this? What vantage point are they coming from, and how does that color what they're saying? All of these things, they, it sounds complicated, but once you start living this way and ingesting things this way, it's just like eating. You can I know now when I go to a restaurant that when I look at the menu, what things are not good for me. <laughs> if I just slow down and look at the menu, I can see easily what's not good for me. We were just uh, on vacation, and we were at a restaurant that had— shrimp at it, and uh, one way you could get the shrimp is just broiled, and the other was breaded. Well, I know right away, if the shrimp is breaded, that's a whole lot more calories, and I'm not going to feel very good after I've eaten that, even though it tastes good going down. But I know as a conscious eater that, um, that if it's breaded, it's not going to be good for me. And we, we treat uh, the inputs in our life the same way. We slow down and pay attention to things we know already that aren't true, and we out them, including agendas, assumptions, skin in the game with whoever is throwing us this information. The third thing is 
if the truth appears to be in contradiction with something Jesus said or did, or something that the Bible clearly teaches, then it's time to pay better attention to the real meaning of that biblical take. Um, so, for instance, uh, uh, I mentioned a couple podcasts ago that after our small group a couple weeks ago, there was a—actually, uh, uh, it was a film night. Um, a few of the young people stuck around till after midnight because they were having a heated conversation about truth and untruth. One of the topics of conversation was about homosexuality. And obviously, in our culture today, uh, homosexuality ha- has a much different connotation than it did, say, 50 years ago, of course. We all know this is true. So is that change in connotation uh, a truth or an untruth? That's essentially what these young people were debating in our kitchen until after midnight, one of the things they were debating. And um, I wasn't there for the debate. I was sleeping. (laughs) But afterward, I was talking to my wife about this whole conversation because she stayed up for it. And I, I had just gotten a book uh, sent to me at my office, because I often get uh, uh, books sent to me by publishers in, uh, to review in the magazine that I edit. And this book was called Costly Obedience. And it was a book written by um, a couple of researchers, professors, who have for two decades been researching a growing trend in the LGBTQ community of people who uh, describe themselves as uh, sort of conservative biblical Christians who also identify as gay and have decided to be celibate. This movement is called uh, Celibate Gays. I had never heard of it before. But this book, Costly Obedience, is published by Zondervan, a major publisher, and these two researchers are highly respected researchers, and they had been researching this sort of sub-community of the gay community for a couple of decades now. And it's, it's a, like, as I said, a growing community of gay men and women who have um, said and, it, uh, and have sort of embraced the fact that they are same-sex attracted while they simultaneously accept the uh, biblical standard for sexual activity between same-sex couples. And so they have said there's a third option. I can accept that I have this same-sex attraction, but I have made a commitment to live my life celibate in adherence to what I see as a biblical standard for my sexual behavior. And they are uh, uh, happy, fulfilled people who are seeking community with others who've made a similar commitment. So these two researchers wrote a whole book about these people who have uh, are fueling a growing movement uh, in, the, in the Christian church. And I think this is a fascinating approach to this controversy, to this issue. Um, it embraces the real struggles that people have, um, and it also embraces um, some of the clear guidelines that Scripture has, and it finds a third way that these, these folks in this community are celebrating, even promoting as a historic, traditional way to live your life for Jesus that has been true in every generation in history, that there are those who have committed themselves to celibacy, including the Apostle Paul, for one. So I haven't read the whole book. I'm not sure what I think about all of their arguments, but the what this community is saying has resonance with me. I have great respect for the courage that the people in this community are taking 
to try to both live the truth about what they are experiencing in life, but also the truth of Scripture. So, and the the last thing about this wrestling with these truths and untruths that are coming at us, and and wrestling with Jesus over them, is to pay attention to the context. Always pay attention to the context. That same Friday night conversation I was talking about, one of the other issues they talked about was um, women submitting to men uh, in the that a whole authority debate. And that is one that my wife dragged me out there for, for about three minutes. And I think I mentioned this on a previous podcast, that I did come out for a few minutes and 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 uh, throw something onto the table for them. But one of the things I said to them in this conversation is, it's important, vitally important to understand the cultural context that Paul was in when he said some of the things that seem extreme to our ears. Um, and I said, you know, for instance, you need to understand the how women were treated and the role they had in society in that context to fully understand what Paul was saying. If you don't understand that, Paul was not speaking outside of context. It, yes, Scripture has application to every time, and yet it's also true. Paul was speaking within a certain time and a certain cultural reality, so it's important to understand those things as you're listening to what he's saying. And the other thing I said to them is the other part of that context that never gets thought about is that the uh, husband in this submission relationship is mutually submitting, and his role is to give up his life for his wife. And I said that's hardly a, a small ask on behalf of men to give up their life for their wife, but that often doesn't get talked about because it's such a hot button. The other side of this issue is such a hot button. But to examine this from all sides and to include all contexts is important. It requires that we slow down and we don't move through life so quickly like we're in a all-you-can-eat cafeteria and we're just jamming whatever we can into our mouths. Living life needs to be more like a slowed-down, enjoyable, savored meal. And when we come across something that is rotten or not worth eating, we shove it to the side of our plate and we don't eat it. There you have it. Well, thanks for listening, gang. Remember, you can check out the, the Jesus-Centered Bible the source of all truth, really, because it points to the Word, who is Jesus. Check out our Jesus Center Bible. The whole reason we added those extra features was to rivet your attention on the truth, and no matter where you are reading in Scripture. So please, if you haven't, if you don't have a Jesus Center Bible, or you know someone who could really benefit from it, please check that out. You can go to group.com and just search for Jesus Center Bible, and it'll take you right to it. Um, and also, um, I mentioned uh, my new book, The God Who Fights For You, is just out about a week now, so please check that out on Amazon. Uh, you can also tell others about it on your Facebook page or your Instagram page or Twitter or so on. I'd love any little uh, recommendation you could spread to your circle of influence would be helpful. And for links to all the things we talked about today, you can check out PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. You're looking for Season 4, Episode 27 of... Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. This is, uh, by the way, a podcast from Lifetree, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll talk to you again next time. 